This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here on my own today for our interview episode. You might have noticed this is coming on a Thursday because the Oscar nominations are out and we wanted a chance to talk about the nominations. And now here we are with a conversation with two of the people behind the Oscar-nominated Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. We have Kent Powers, who is one of the film's three directors. He was also the co-director of Soul, you might remember. And we have Haley Steinfeld, who is the voice of Gwen Stacy, a.k.a. Spider-Gwen. And I think even before I talked to them, I didn't really realize what talking to an animation director and an actor would be like, because, you know, we all know they're going into the booth as actors. They're saying a line a million times and getting it on there. Um, But the way that performances work in this movie, the way that this movie specifically evolved over the course of production and changed, you know, there's one scene early in the film between Haley as Gwen and Shea Wiggum as her father, Captain Stacy, that uh, according to both of them, it was one of the first scenes that they did in production. And then they came all the way back around to it at the end. And it had changed a ton throughout that. But it's really interesting to hear how that affects performances and how they get a chance for a do-over and to adjust it and to find the character over the course of the film. And Haley, of course, was the voice of Gwen in the first film. She'll They'll both return for the third movie, which, of course, they're terrified to say anything about. Um, but I think the way that they reflect on this movie and what they've taken from it is kind of an interesting hint about where the Spider-Verse movies will go from here. Um, I had such a great time talking to them. I really felt like I learned something and hope you do, too. So let's hear my conversation with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verses, Kemp Powers, and Haley Seinfeld. Well, I'm so happy to be on the line with one of the directors of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Kemp Powers, and one of the stars, Haley Steinfeld. Hi, guys. Hey, how's it going? I'm excited to talk to you guys together, actually, because I was reading some of the press you'd done. And if you have done interviews together, I didn't find them. And because I think you guys talk about your different parts of the process. But a film like this has so many parts of the process. And the ways that you overlap are fascinating to me because I don't think that we get to talk about it that much. So I wondered if you guys could just start. You know, Haley, you were in the first film, Kemp. You came on to work on this one even before Soul had come out. You're kind of jumping from one film to the other. So do you remember what that first meeting between the two of you was like when you got to work together? on this? I, I just remember our, our first meeting was Haley's first recording session. So mm. 
And that that session included kind of like a pitch about what the movie was going to be. And because this movie was so different, I think, visually than the first one, I, I did a lot of explaining about Gwen's world in particular, because Gwen is a lot more forward in this film. Um, she's she's basically like a co-lead and her world is basically this mood ring. And it was tough because the technology wasn't done yet. So we had just mm. like a couple of tech samples, some visual development that we showed Haley. And then we just got into it. And of course, the way these animated films are made, it was basically just random scenes from all throughout the movie, which I'm, mm. I, I can you can ask Haley, but I'm sure it must have made like no sense what the hell the story <laughs> was going to be. But um, for me, I, I mean, she doesn't know this, but I was kind of like intimidated because I had just watched True Grit like a couple of days before our recording session. What? And, and when Haley came in, she had that kind of Maddie energy where she's like such like she kind of comes in like a pro. The only thing that gives it away is she had her two Yorkshire Terriers with her. <laughs> and, and she just kind of like let them out in the booth. And they were just kind of like walking around and she was just like, all right, let's do this. And I'm like, wow, I I feel like <laughs> there was a little bit of an intimidation, but it very quickly melted away. And, and she, you know, she was warm right out of the gate. But I was a little bit uh, intimidated with a, a, a new working with a new actor of such stature. <laughs> I would have never. I never knew that. Thank you. <laughs> so how do you remember that, Haley? Well, I, I remember walking in, I mean, and, and Kemp, you can speak to this too. This is, this has obviously taken place over a number of years. And yeah. within those years, you're doing other projects, you're in other parts of the world, and you're coming into these sessions from God knows where in that moment, um, mentally and emotionally, let alone physically. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I distinctly remember our first meeting and, and hearing the pitch for the film, because a lot of times people often ask, what did you think of the script? And I I uh, <laughs> will find a way to tell them that um, I, I uh, didn't exactly get an entire hundred and something page uh, script <laughs> off the bat, but I got this beautiful, um, very visual description from Kemp and, and he used that mood ring reference and that got me right, right to where I needed to be. It helped me understand everything that then was explained to me after that. Um, and it, it's a wild process. One that I've certainly underestimated um, the, art of voice acting, coming in from wherever, coming in with not a whole lot of, of material necessarily that you've been able to live with on the page for what I like to be weeks in advance, if, if at the very least. And so to come in and have Kemp, who is absolutely one of our directors, but I consider him one of our co-stars because in those sessions, if it weren't for Kemp and his ability to act through every other part in the movie that my <laughs> character has scenes with, I would not be able to, I wouldn't have been able to deliver my, the performance that I did. Um, so it's a wild process and it's been one that I, of course, will continue to be challenged by and fascinated by. Um, but I'm so grateful for our collaboration through this, throughout this process. Wow. Um, Kim, I heard you talk about the mood ring description for Gwen's world on the commentary also. And I th mm -hmm. I think when you're watching the movie, it feels so vivid and right. But maybe for anyone listening, can you kind of describe what that means exactly? What does it mean for a world to be a mood ring? And how does that affect a performer like Haley? Well, I mean, basically, it, the that just means the world has to adapt to her performance. Whatever the character is feeling emotionally in a moment, it needs to be reflected in the entire world around her, even if she's not using any words. So mm -hmm. even before she opens her mouth, we can tell or, you know, contrasting what she's saying, we can tell her emotional state 
based on how the world is reacting around her. Basically, she is the center. In Gwen's universe, she is the center of her universe. It's not... <laughs> it, that, that that's literally the case. That's what we were we were going for, and it was largely inspired by um, the the Gwen Stacy Spider Gwen um, comic books that we drew drew a lot of inspiration from. So, this film was unique in that a lot of the technical things that we had to develop were being developed while we were in production, and the the geniuses over at Sony Pictures um, ImageWorks they figured it out in many cases very very late in the process. So, you know, we're kind of like the entire team is taking a bit of a, a leap of faith that the technology is going to catch up with what we're imagining where we're going to be able to do. But Gwen's world was, I think, by far one of the most challenging worlds that we spend time in. And that was also an exciting thing about opening the film on Gwen, because mm-hmm. this film is so different than the first one. It's, it's, it's such a different film. And since we know there's going to be such different visual language... Part of you goes like, okay, do we want to ease the audience into it? You know, and it's like, no, let's let's start off with one of the most extreme visual differences that we possibly could to readjust, reset people's expectations about what this film is going to be, not just visually, but emotionally. I think Gwen's opening is is so emotional and it's so focused on the relationship between Gwen and her father. And, and, and another wonderful thing performance-wise, that's why it's so great to have Haley um, and Shea Wiggum uh, playing Gwen and George Stacy, just such great dramatic actors because we, we knew we were going to try to pull so much drama out of it. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
So, Haley, you said that that mood ring language helped really click you into place. Um, why was it? Why was that the phrase? And and how did that prepare you for that stuff Kemp's talking about? Well, I think um, walking into this second one, I I, I had um, a lot more confidence in understanding the process a little bit more for starters, one, the team and knowing that I was in the most incredible hands, but three, still feeling that, that lack of, I don't know, something like tangible because it's Hmm. not often that we get to go in and see even the bare, bare, bare bones of something. Um, But, you know, sometimes you do and you get some sort of stick figure like drawing and you're like, oh, great, that that doesn't help me at all, but I'm going to act like it does. (laughs) Um, And so just to hear Kemp's description of exactly what he just told us, I mean, that right there with the lines on the page and the words on the page and the the context on the page, given that information, it helped just make sense in my brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And taking something as simple as that reference, that Gwen's world is like a mood ring and that her emotions sort of dictate how we will feel watching something so visual. The visuals are going to help get us on the same page of her frustration and her anger and her longing and her everything that she's possibly going through without distracting you as an audience member. Um, It helped get me there. And I'm a very visual person, so it's not easy for me to go in and feel like I don't have anything to sort of look at. And that's, I think, one of my favorite parts about the fact that this sort of thing takes so long. I think once upon a time, there was a version of me that like I had to go back in for ADR and or reshoots and and on some other project. And I'm like, oh, what a what a pain, what an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I did this project that I feel like how lucky are we to continue to have these opportunities to go in and further perfect and better our performance and this ultimate end result that we're all working towards. Um, and to go back and forth, you know, starting with, with little to nothing visually to then going back and seeing just the slightest, if it's 30 seconds, it just like it, it, I'll never forget after I saw wasn't even the whole film. Um, but it was the most that I had seen up until that point. I was like, I, I feel like I could redo everything. I feel like <laughs> I'm so inspired and so driven by what I'm seeing now. But that, I don't know. It's it's this sort of never-ending process <laughs> in the best way. I, um, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that well. I remember her like, we're thinking like, oh man, this is going to blow Haley's mind. So what do you think? And she's like, uh, I think I could record something better. And we're like, oh, oh okay, cool. Yeah, sure. I mean, so in many cases, she, I can vouch for the fact that she was the one who was totally like, yeah, I don't I don't mind coming back in um, and, and doing a few more takes of that line. Because once once a lot of times it was you would have scenes and out of context, you give a certain performance. But then when you see the scenes around it, it makes it more contextual. And I think Haley was just so committed to having like a balanced performance throughout. So mm-hmm. it so it, it didn't seem like she was at a at a nine and then suddenly at a two. So she mm-hmm. wanted to just have, so sometimes it's like a contextual thing where the, the reads are good, but once she has the, um, this, the surrounding scene, she would kind of be like, could we t- tackle that again? And, and, and take a, take a look at it again. So it, it was very refreshing. Maybe as a way to drill in on what you guys are talking about, there's those two early scenes between Gwen and her dad, the, um, like the really emotional ones at the house and then the confrontation at the Guggenheim. Can you guys just talk about how those scenes were made and how many times you go back and do it and how you perfect it and when you realize it's perfect and maybe you can move on? Maybe that's just because the release date's coming. But uh, how did those work specifically? Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because that scene was one of the first scenes in the film we worked on and also the one, one of the, the last scenes right? we were, were, were Yes. And and one of the last scenes we were working on at the very end. That gives you an idea of how many times we went back again and again and again. And it was fine and it was good, but then looking at other parts of the film we finished later, go like, oh, we should go back and, and redo it again. And Haley and Shay, usually when we record this, we record everyone solo in their booth and we edit together the performance together. Um, but in the case, in this case, we actually brought Haley and Shay together in the same room. And I think that really activated their scenes together in a way that Maybe we could have accomplished it the traditional way, but it, but some there was something about all the kind of the breasts, the the size, the ad libbing, just letting a father and daughter kind of like letting them get into their respective roles as a father and daughter and just react to one another naturally, which we didn't do till pretty far along in the process. That I think really um, activated the scene because you know they understand the way this works when we're first recording them. It's still 2D storyboard animation. It's not, it's not animated yet. It's just 2D storyboard drawings. And then eventually it moves to a step that we call um, layout, which it's three-dimensional, but the characters aren't really moving. And then even when we move into the early stages of animation, the bodies are being animated, but in many cases, the miles aren't animated yet. So it's, it's one of those things where we have lots and lots of opportunities to both see the performance but we have chances to change it before it kind of gets locked into the mouth movements. Plus, we have the added benefit of a movie with spider people and that when it's loud action scenes and anyone's wearing a mask, you can't really tell when we re-record anyway. So little changes in the reads would not be noticeable because people are behind a mask. But we didn't have the luxury of that in the, the face-to-face um, apartment scenes between Gwen and, and George, which I think is part of the reason why, you know, we, we really just wanted to get that right because we were going to see their faces and see a lot of close-ups. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that only one or two people have ever noticed, like other like filmmaker friends. They've been like, wow, for an animated film, you guys have like a lot of like close-ups and long pauses. And it's like, yeah, like that was a that was like a very conscious decision to to have it more reflective of what you see um, in a live action uh, dramatic scene. So Haley, from your perspective, what difference does that make? And what what does perfecting that scene mean for you? Well, I I mean, that particular scene meant a great deal to me to get to get that right and really nail the tone. Um, and I will say it is an absolute luxury and a privilege to be in the booth with the other actor in, in the scene. I um, did not take any of that for granted because although having their reading in your, in your headphones is as if they're there because that, that performance is so impactful, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't compare to, like Kemp was saying, having that freedom to sit in that silence and throw in some ad libs and understand the dynamic and the banter and the timing. You can't do that if you're not in the same room. Um, you can try and I'm sure you could get awfully close, but there's a magic that happens when, when two people are in a room like that and, and, and in a scene like that. Um, and I think the reason that that ended up being one of my favorite ones is because I don't mean to sound like a broken record and and repeat what Kem said, but we had done that. We started with that and we ended with that. So by the time I got to it again, Mm -hmm. I knew exactly every part of Gwen's 
journey. And, and to go back to something like that in the, you know, that takes place in the beginning, knowing everything that she'd been through, it was the closest thing I could have felt to having shot a live action thing, you know, full all the way through and then going back and, and, and touching on something in the beginning. I felt like I'd been through it. I felt like I understood every part of this, this character's journey and the story and the story we were telling and the story that this character is a part of. And so going back in then at the end and being in the room with Shay was, was so, so special. And not to mention, like we had a, we had such a great time and um, to think that you've got it and you're good to move on. I don't know if that's like, I, as an artist, I don't know that you'll ever like fully get to that point. Right. It's always, you always feel like you can give more and keep experimenting And this. I'm so, so grateful for this team of, of filmmakers that have allowed us the the space and the and the freedom and the patience um, to keep going back and to keep exploring and keep discovering, but also the fact that we've had their trust since day one um, is such a blessing. And and uh, you know, I look to them and defer to to Kemp to to move on because um, I could I could go all day. Kemp, how do you trust yourself to move on? Does does knowing there's a third movie coming make you feel like oh, okay, fine, Larry, we get didn't get it that time, but we'll get no, the next one. No, no, not. A, qu- quite the opposite because we really treated this as like it's it was its own its own thing there was there was really i mean other than that cliffhanger there was we wanted to make sure that the the emotional arcs of these characters that they were you know handled in a way we felt comfortable with and and it's honestly it's my other directors it's uh you know joaquin justin of course phil lord and chris miller who were kind of like overseeing the whole thing we we have these pretty vigorous um debates and discussions uh about about this kind of stuff i mean we're we're our own harshest critics and we're all big fans of cinema we're all we're all filmmakers and we have conversations with the actors i mean again like sometimes when you do these readings you just have the actor do the lines. I mean, part I, I kind of got drafted into. Haley was really kind. I got drafted into being the the scene partner only because I have a little bit of a background in theater. But don't believe her. I'm not good at it. So there's there's Kevin, no. If you weren't good at no, it, there's, we would have a totally different movie. No, let's, I mean, let's hold on. Let's just say I'm no Shay Wiggum. Let's put it that way. Like I'm I'm no I'm no Shay Wiggum. So as much as I might try to give, it's not going to be the same as you know, the depth of wit, what a talent like, like Shay is going to bring. So, you know, I, I recognize my own performance, uh, a shortcomings, um, <laughs> when it, when it, when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yeah. I wondered if it was in bigger scenes, like, you know, the Guggenheim scene that also comes earlier in the film where you have spider people popping up out of everywhere. If that's Kemp, where you kind of have to really step up more and, and what you do give Haley in a sequence like that to like stay in the moment when it's kind of really chaotic and hard to understand probably when you're not watching it. Well, I mean, I guess it's it's just a matter of, of breaking it down. Um, sometimes it's easier to take things line by line. Sometimes it's nice to get the momentum. Sometimes there is there are too many other bits and pieces um, for just Kemp to fill in for. Um, but a lot of times, like, I don't know. I, I, I felt like it, it varied um, based on the scene. But a lot of times we would go in and they'd be rolling, but we would just read it to get the words off the page and and out of our heads and sort of into the air. And we'd kind of decide the plan of attack from there. So um, I think scenes like that, it was easier to, to break down um, and then come back later when we did have something visual and I could, I could keep up with the pace of what I was then watching. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I, that's yeah. how I remember. Yeah. The it. Guggenheim scene It's funny. You say the Guggenheim scene, because to us, the Guggenheim scene is, is really like 10 scenes. 
it's it's, it's, it really is i mean there's yeah we will do a run through where we're just doing her her vocal reactions to things going on we're like okay now you're falling you know okay now you just got kicked in the stomach so we'll we'll do basically the line reads first and then we'll do a lot of the action stuff of course if they're screaming anything where you're exerting your voice we save all that stuff to the end so Mm because we don't want anyone to blow their voice out and you know Well, you may not know, these are usually four hour recording sessions and that might not sound like a lot, but it's a lot of time. These are these are kind of these are kind of marathon sessions. So if there's any kind of real um, screaming or exerting or shouting, we save all of that stuff to the end. And, And Guggenheim, from an action standpoint, it's a long scene that really is broken down into different component sequences each one with different characters coming in, all interacting with Gwen. It, it is just funny that you mentioned that because it, it really is almost like a, a film unto itself with mm-hmm. with so many uh, uh, different components. And and actually, I don't think I did a lot of um, line reads opposite anyone just because of that, because it was, uh, yeah. m- with me, it was more a lot of the dramatic scenes. Well, yeah, and then you get another really dramatic scene at the end, again, between Gwen and her dad, where it's a lot of silences, which you're talking about oh, the power man. of the character animation. That's one where the close-ups are just heartbreaking, yeah. and it's entirely just tiny bits of animation. It's really a marvel. Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes in the in the film, and, and it took us quite a while to crack that. I'm sure you remember, Haley, of all the scenes that, we re- that Phil and Chris and we just rewrote again and again and again, that was one of two or three scenes that went through a lot of a lot of rewriting as well as a lot of uh, re-recording to try to get to some kind of understanding between Gwen and her father that didn't feel pat, that felt earned, especially based on the journey that that Gwen has has gone through um, and being away from her her dad so much. Uh, and, And also visually, that scene is one of my favorites in the film as well, because the whole idea of the Gwen's world being a mood ring, you finally see what it the world looks like when the burden of everything she's struggling through is lifted off of her. So when her and her dad kind of finally engage in that final embrace, the whole world lightens and and brightens in a way that should make you, it made us feel really, really good. So uh, yeah, I, I love that scene. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. I mean, I know that talking about a third movie is basically impossible, so I'm not going to ask you to. But I do think having reaction to this movie must be really interesting for you guys, kind of knowing what clicked, knowing what people really want to talk to you about. So what have you taken away from the reaction to this one that you might carry with you, whether like literally or just kind of in your brain um, into making the next one? You know, I would say I've I've had a handful of experiences now where I... I'm lucky enough to live with a character over a, a great length of time. And one of the beauties of that is you do sort of get this like real time reaction from people um, and you get to see what it is they are resonating with the most and, and um, what they're drawn to. And from the minute I, I feel like from the minute I was, was 
it was announced that I was a part of this film, I was getting sort of feedback from from people in in real time about who Gwen is to them and what they love about Gwen and and to see that those comments from these fans and from readers of of the comics do not go unheard. They Mm. take every bit of that into consideration. These films are for the fans. And it's so amazing now as a fan to be a part of that. I, I, just as much as them, if not more, I'm looking forward to where the heck this is going as a, Mm. as a fan of, of all these people involved as a fan of this character and this, this Spider-Man story. It's really exciting. And to, uh, I, I, I was at the at the Globes recently, and I and somebody had come up to me, and they were like, "Wait a minute, you're the girl that that voices Spider Gwen," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's me," and that's so funny because you don't like, you know, you're you're getting recognized for your face and something they think they saw you in, right? But I was having a conversation with this person, and they heard that in my voice, and it was the most incredible thing. And this person then went on to say, I don't know, are, are, do, you, do you just do voice acting? Do you do anything else? <laughs> and I thought, funny. that is the coolest thing. I've never, I've never had an encounter like that. But, but the fact that as, as someone who came from this with not much uh, experience with voice acting, who has relied so heavily on physicality and, and props and sets and being you know in the, in the field and getting my hands dirty to be able to connect with people in that way is such a testament to the work involved from every single person that has had anything to do with this film. So it's incredible to have been a part of something that has resonated with people around the globe. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I guess to answer your question is a very long winded answer. I myself am just so looking forward to seeing what this team takes into, into consideration yet again uh, and, and putting forth into, into the next chapter. You guys were great at the Globes, Kemp. I feel like as a writer, you probably also really um, applauded the uh, the bit that they got to do presenting in favor of the writers at the Golden Globes. No, no, was that, was, that was all. That was all Phil and Chris. That was all Phil and Chris. They oh, wrote no, that I just bit. meant like we're all like applauding them. Like I feel like every writer on the earth was like, "Yes, oh, thank yeah. you." Yeah. Oh God, that bit was hilarious. I think it was one of the the highlights of the evening for me. <laughs> I, was, um, I would absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, but yes, Kemp, I know you know more about what the third one is. So again, I don't want to make you say things you don't want to. But just, you know, six months after the movie's come out, like what, what's lingered with you about the feedback on this one? I think it's, I'm a little like, I'm introspective about it because I'm relieved. People might not realize this, but near the end of the process, when the film is almost done, you get to a point, at least I think you get to a point, we always do, where we kind of look around at each other and you're like, man, I hope somebody likes this other than us. <laughs> like, you really do. You just kind of go, oh, man, I hope, I hope, like, I don't want friends calling me saying, like, you ruined my childhood. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you ruined my kid's childhood or something. And it's only because this film is so different. You know, I, I think the first film really was, to me, it was like a masterpiece. And it's like, well, yeah, we're not going to try to repeat that. We're going to try to do something completely different that hopefully people will be able to enjoy in a different way. But that can be challenging when you're not, in a weird way, I think we, if we did meet expectations in this film, it's because we didn't try to meet people's expectations. We tried to go in a very different direction. We tried to do some different things narratively. We tried to do some different things character-wise. I mean, the number of times leading up to the film where people were like, hey, I hear Spider-Man Noir is not in the movie, man. People are going to riot. I'm like, well, don't mm. don't worry. Like, we're, we're going, we got a story we're trying to tell. Trust us. And people, I guess, understandably, don't ever want to trust us. So uh, for me, it's just every movie made is a miracle. Um, to actually then have the second miracle of it connecting to an audience 
that feels like nothing short of a blessing. And we got that with this film. And that's really uh, good enough because when you talk about a new film, whether it's a, a sequel or whatever, the boulder is right back down at the bottom of the hill and you got to start pushing mm-hmm. it up again. It's going to create a whole new series. It creates a whole new series of challenges to overcome. It's like starting all over again, again and again and again. It really isn't a continuation of anything. So, you know, I'm happy people, it connected to people, to a lot of people, because honestly, right up until the very end, we we kind of didn't know how well it was going to play or, or, or not going to play. And, and so that feels like pretty magical. But it's pushing a boulder up a hill in a fun way, right? It's worth it in the end, even though it's pushing that boulder. Yeah, of course it's worth it in the end. I mean, but there's periods in the middle where it's where you're all kind of like where it does not feel. And and I'm not trying to speak for. I mean, the, it's it's so strange that you do this stuff that's entertainment, and people think that it's just everyone smiling and happy all the time. But it's also problem solving. It's problem solving from a dramatic, from a technical, from all these points, and problem solving, and you get stymied a lot. It's 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 really tough. So I. I we use terms like we're in the trenches together for a reason because at times it feels like we're at war <laughs> to, to try to to try to get our vision across and, and it really is yeah. it really is a, it's a vision that you're that you're trying to get across and um it, it's always worth it in the end i mean I, I i feel more lucky than anyone else to be able to be a professional storyteller for a living you know yeah. I don't want to lie and make it sound like that's somehow easy. I think it's quite the opposite. I think it's one of the hardest things to do when you have a bunch of talented people being asked to bear their souls <laughs> on a on a yeah. daily basis and, and kind of for, for the world. So, um, yeah, it's worth it for sure. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week on our regular schedule, including more conversations with this year's Oscar nominees. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on social media at VF Awards Insider, and you can find me on social media at Katie Rich. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.